0: You're listening to Where the World Comes to Talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich. This week, we'll be looking at coloring books. Not just for kids anymore, but particular coloring books prepared by the director of the Fort Lewis Military Museum in Washington State, Alan H. Archambault. Creator of the Sketchbook of the Union Infantryman, Black Soldiers in the Civil War, and other works that portray the uniforms of the blue and gray in black and white. Join us for a discussion with Alan Archambault on Civil War Talk Radio. programming tools.
1: Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers.
0: Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power
1: of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com.
2: That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com.
0: World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking to you today from my office on the 100-year-old campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking on behalf of this centennial institution or against it just from within it, and thus no legal responsibility attaches to to them for anything I say, and vice versa. It is March 2007 as we record this today, and it is the week of the 100th anniversary of the founding of this school, once the East Carolina Teachers Training School, then East Carolina Teachers College, East Carolina College, East Carolina University, and soon East Carolina long-distance, Internet-only correspondence school, if the administrators have their way, because it's so much cheaper to use media like we're doing here today, the Internet, than to actually stand face-to-face with students and interact with them. But that's an issue for another day. Uh, Today, we're here to talk about the Civil War with uh, our guest, Alan H. Archambault, who has created uh, some interesting works Uh, His day job, however, is as a military museum director, and we'll talk about all those things. Alan, are you there?
1: Yes, I am, Jerry.
0: Thanks for uh, joining us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Uh,
0: Let's start out. uh, We don't often have the uh, artists on the show. It's not perhaps the best medium, uh, unfortunately. It's an audio medium for, for visual art. But let's talk about uh, some of the things you've done. And let's start with, with your own background. What uh, got you interested in, in civil war as a, a subject?
1: Well, I guess I might say, first of all, I'm a child of the centennial. Um, I got interested around 1960, 61, with all the materials that be being put out in preparation and uh, during the centennial. And um, I think as we corresponded, I, I had the blue and gray... Uh, set from Mox um, and the Johnny Reb cannon and all the other trappings that went with being a little boy during the Centennial.
0: You mentioned to me uh, in our correspondence, uh, of course, the, the Blue and Gray playset by the, the Lewis Marks Company is something a lot of us have in our backgrounds if we're old enough to go back that far. I'm perhaps not quite uh, as many years back, but close enough that I had one of those playsets and, and treasured yeah. it, and still do, in fact. But you mentioned the Johnny Reb Cannon, which, right. I have to admit, predates me, but you directed me to YouTube, where I watched the commercial for it. Oh, great. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: spectacular. Did you have one of those?
1: Yes, I did. I did. I actually shot out the, the uh, back door of my uh, mother's kitchen uh, with it by mistake. It had a, had a misfire, so to speak. It had a big spring that propelled a plastic cannonball uh, with quite a bit of force. <laughs> and, it, and I had a misfire, and it went. I always remember that, and that was... Uh, that was quite an event in my life. Um, she wasn't real happy with me. I, but I had it for many, many years, and in fact, when I went off to serve in the Army, my father uh, found it in the, uh, in the barn, and he put it on our front lawn. And for many years, <laughs> it sat out on the front lawn as uh, sort of a lawn ornament.
0: Well, it, it's a big can. It's like two feet long. It's a big yeah, can. Yeah, it was good
1: size. Yeah, and It was made of a very sturdy plastic, which actually uh, held up you know, very well being outside for, I guess I'd say, a number of years.
0: Well, they, the uh, for obvious safety reasons, they don't make high-velocity projectile-firing toys for kids. Uh, any? No, that's true. <laughs> it's kind of well, too friend
1: bad. friend sent me that, um, and it's listed as one of the worst toys uh, ever <laughs> um, because it, it could hurt your. Bro- and it, it mentioned you could hurt your your baby brother with it. And as my friend said, "Hey, that was the whole idea."
0: Oh, exactly. <laughs> It's a selling point for many people. a it's, it's baby brother, baby sister, you can hit him head with a plastic cannonball. what what could be better? Exactly. The, uh,
1: great. Yes, great. Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed that uh, commercial. I remember it as a child, uh, that commercial. And again, I think the centennial for many of us and many of my colleagues, even in the museum profession, uh, who, who are Civil War devotees, you know, really we have that, you know, we, we joke and we have those um, commonalities in, chi- in our childhood.
0: Yeah, uh, that some, one of these weeks I will have to talk to. Uh, we frequently have younger authors on, and I'll have to ask. I, I always ask people what got them interested, but the the toy aspect, the play aspect, doesn't seem to have seems to have been lost after the mid 1960s. Uh, Probably
1: not- so. Although I think the, the mocks did put the sets out for a number of years.
2: They
1: um, There are like toy collectors, and I've looked at some of the uh, you know literature, and some of those sets are quite valuable. Um, particularly certain pieces, but um, Marx was was very clever, and they reissued these things pretty regularly. Yeah, and I think yeah. they were putting them out right up through the 1970s, you know, uh, late 70s.
0: That I think that sounds right, and definitely, if you can get the Falling Horse and Rider piece original, uh, you're you're in very good shape.
1: That's right. That's right. You, you're in the Bill Gates category then. You know, right. of toy of toy collecting.
0: Well, to bring all our listeners into the uh, the fun that we are having I will be putting up uh when I put up uh, an image of the author's book each week with your permission you sent me a very uh nice full color rendering of two boys playing with the blue and gray set uh only they look like real people they're all in full color so <laughs>
1: right. their imagination I, 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 I do a them. series of toys um Sketches, and that's one of the things you elaborated. Make a little room. That's our the Civil War set of our imagination.
0: Exactly, the, the figures have all seemingly come to life. And right.
1: uh, isn't that how you pictured them as children, though?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I would lie down on the floor and and look at them at eye level, so I was one of them. Uh, try to get and and just looking through them, even though they were monochrome plastic, they were they were quite real.
1: Well we spent a friend I had two other friends um and and again I'm sure the centennial sparked the initial interest but we we spent the whole one whole winter vacation you know over the Christmas holidays painting all of ours. and several years ago, I linked up with this friend from childhood and he actually as a present gave me some of the painted ones he still had
0: Wow how nice
1: knowing that I still had the interest uh in, in, in the Civil War, you know, many of my friends would drop it, you know, as they would get into high school or whatever, and I never quite dropped it
0: completely. <laughs> so did you go on to study history in college? What...
1: Yes I did. Um, uh, one thing I should mention uh, that was was quite uh, an influence on me as a child is when I got the blue and gray playset, I always remember my parents both had uh, family members in the Civil War. And they told me that, you know, and I was very excited. And my father, um, I was the baby of my family, and um, my grandfather, uh, who who used to babysit for me, had actually served in the 7th Cavalry during the Spanish-American War. Uh, His name was Charles Oshimbo. And my father um, used to spend his summers on his grandfather's farm, who had served in the Federal Navy during the Civil War. So the Civil War never seemed far away to me because my father actually knew, you know, his grandfather who had served. So there seemed to be a, you know, a closeness to the time period that maybe some people wouldn't have had by virtue of having an older parent.
2: I,
0: I think that's right. That that connectivity of American history is, is fascinating. There's the story of Henry Adams, uh, of the education of Henry Adams. Knew John Quincy Adams, his grandfather, and he knew Franklin Delano Roosevelt,
1: mm-hmm. both,
0: both well, that one one person could span that much of U.S. history.
1: Yeah, don't you think we tend, as historians, compartmentalize times?
0: Well, very much so. You tend to, to think, well, we, we put things in the present or the past. I use a concept that uh, James Lowen, who has been on the show, has talked about uh, an African concept of the, the Sasha and the Zamani, the the recently dead and the long dead,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and if an event is, or, or when people have died, but everybody, but there are still people alive who knew them, they are in, in the recent dead category, mm-hmm. the living dead. They're, they're not really gone from this earth. When the last person who knew someone also passes, then they move to the next category. And the Civil War is certainly in that category for all of us. We don't Know anyone? But, but you're awfully close. You knew someone who knew someone who was there.
1: Exactly, exactly. And my grandfather, again, who had you know, worn the blue uniform over in Cuba, uh, you know, knew a lot about the Civil War because you know he talked to the veterans, and, and he had an interest, evidently, as a child in the Civil War, and had actually collected um, some of these um, paper-bound Miller's pictorial. Uh, evidently, they issued these these photographic books in a serial form. Uh, you know, I think there were 16 paperback, ma- like, magazines, mm-hmm. and later became the, the sketchbook, I guess, that uh, of photographs. And my grandfather had those, and he had I really got them as a child in the 1880s. Hmm. And so, again, there was that, that interest, uh, you know, that, that came from having a family connection to it. So, and I think living in New England, I grew up in a, on basically what was an 18th century farm, um... They had actually been uh, farmed right up, right up until the time I was a child, and, and uh, the old house was built in the 1700s. So there was a lot of, if you want, that ambiance of history around you, uh, which I think, you know, in a, in a spiritual kind of way, uh, you know, sort of led me to the historical interest as well.
0: Where in New England did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Rhode Island. Um, actually, uh, just sort of interest to um, your listeners is my village I lived in was Patuxet. And right down the street was the Elisha Hunt Rhodes house.
0: And, you know, you know for
1: the second Rhode Island, you know, the, the, the ones all for the Union?
0: Yes, yes, the, uh,
1: the collection yes. of letters uh, or journals. Um, and so our little village, um, which was founded in the 1600s, um, had a lot of Civil War history. And a lot of old-timers that, you know, again, the Civil War was not that far away.
0: No, and, and I recall
1: my friends. I think a lot of us picked up on that again with our childhood interests, but yet it was tempered by uh, interaction with folks that that you know had a more mature view of things. Um,
0: but it still sparked our interest. Well, that's uh, living in a place like that. I think is very interesting. I, I received a, a nice a message from a listener this week asking about uh civil war events in in Oregon, Washington state and, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm.
1: oh, Yes, yeah, so there's quite a bit out here actually. Um, I came out here. I, I it's hard for me to believe now, but in 1987, um, I had been uh, previously the director of the Fort George G Meade Museum, uh U.S. Army Museum uh on Fort uh Fort Meade, Maryland. And I really loved it because it was in civil war country, of course. uh Gettysburg wasn't too far away, but I saw an opportunity. Uh, my wife had family on the West Coast, and, and you know, we sort of needed a change of pace, and um, I knew I'd be leaving some Civil War history behind, of course, but I said, well, yeah, let's, let's try it for a little while, and we've really enjoyed it and been out here since 1987, um, but there is quite a few Civil War connections out here, and well, from a museum standpoint, it's great because I'm a big fish in a little pond in that we're the only army museum within, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And really the only official army museum on the west coast of the United States.
0: I'd say you certainly know more more than I do about that, and we can might try and pin you down in just a moment about things to see or do in, in sure, the Northwest. Sure, uh, i I lived for a time in Franklin, Massachusetts, just across the border from Rhode Island.
1: Oh, yes, uh-huh.
0: And uh, there was eye-opening to be in a part of the country where a uh, hundred years old is not old. Uh, Two hundred right. years old is <laughs> not right. old. Uh, if you're founded in sixteen something, now you're starting to get old. That's right.
1: But, That's right. That's right. Uh, um, one of my other interests, uh, among many, is, is the King Philip's War back in the you know sixteen seventy five, sixteen seventy six, and and uh, then you're really getting back there. That,
0: that is well. That could get us started. I, I'm also uh, very fascinated by King Philip's War. The, oh, great. Uh, 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 the, the the impact that made, a great trivia question that I always uh, use uh, on, on classes is which war killed the highest percentage of uh, the American population? That's right. And, uh, of course, it's That's King so Philip's far. War, which nearly uh, wiped out the European settlement in Massachusetts and did pretty much wipe out the 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 Wampanoags as a viable population.
1: It certainly did in the Narragansetts, uh re- really got harmed pretty badly too. Same if you recall way. the 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 uh Massachusetts Bay Colony attacked the the fort, the Narragansett fort, yes, uh, at the Great Swamp in Rhode Island in Kingston, Rhode Island and really really damaged the Narragansetts who actually were sitting on the fence, but uh the uh colonists but well, they went down on the peacekeeping uh uh, mission and as they traveled along, they got more and more apprehensive. And by the time they got to the fort, instead of negotiating, they were ready to to, to wipe them out.
0: And they launched a preemptive strike.
1: Uh, exactly, exactly. Right. <laughs> took, took them
0: out completely. Yeah, well, that, in fact, um... we did a
1: we did a uh, an officer development program uh, here at Fort Lewis, uh, and I did a, a thing on King Philip's War, using you know the you know how did how did the colonists win the war by employing other Indians.
0: Let me just uh, fill in the blanks. And so from your, your childhood interest, uh, you ended up working in museums. Uh, but to, where did you study? What, how, how did well, you get I,
1: I, I just say um, all through my, my school years, I, I basically, uh, as I say, maintained my interest in history uh, and got from the Civil War, which has always been a, a great interest, into the colonial era because of the upcoming bicentennial. Um, but I did go in. I served a uh, hitch in the in the U.S. Army. Uh, right after high school, uh, coming from modest modest background. I felt that you know, it was a good way to get the GI Bill. And, and uh, um, being a military uh, historian or wanting to be a military historian, I felt there's no, there's no substitute for having served in the field. And, and uh, so I did serve for three years uh, from 1969 to 72. Um And then on my uh, return to civilian life, I attended Rhode Island College. And, and that, uh, got a degree, actually my degree is in fine art with a minor in history. Ah. And the reason why, I've, I've always been interested in art and, and always been active in uh, uh, painting and drawing. And I felt that another male um, with a degree in history might not be as attractive or easy to employ as a male who's got an interest in art <laughs> with a minor in history. It you does
0: know? help
1: to have... I'd make me more marketable that way, in other words.
0: Well, that, that I think, was was good thinking. Uh, But, of course, good thinking does not get many of us into the history or museum uh, profession. No,
1: that's right. That's right. Well, fortunately, while I was in the service, um, I became acquainted with the military museums. And I actually volunteered, although I didn't have much time to do so. I usually was kept pretty busy uh, with the units. Uh, But when possible, I would make myself known to the curators. Um, And fortunately, when... uh, I finished, my, I finished my degree, um, a friend who also actually was from Rhode Island, had a big interest in the Civil War, um, who was a museum director for the U.S. Army, uh, did me a wonderful favor and told me about a job opening. And I applied at an entry-level position at, at Fort Meade, and I got the job and was able to work my way up the ladder in a few years to be the director. Wow. And so I have almost 30 years now of uh, federal service, Um, and it's been a wonderful career for me. It it, it really is exactly what I want to be doing. I'm I'm very fortunate in that regard.
0: Well, that is a fortunate thing to say. Not everybody has that privilege to uh, have a passion and and the chance, the opportunity to follow it. And That's not something we all get to do.
1: No, I'm very blessed in that regard. No, it's not without its frustrations, as in every profession. Because when you care deeply about something, it's okay, it's easy to be vulnerable. When there's no budget, or you know, museums, as you well know, and I know from listening to your your broadcast that uh, you worked in a museum, yeah, we're not always well funded, and that, we're not always sure. high in the priority list. Um, you know, which we understand, but it's something we have to work with.
0: Well, that's absolutely the case. You never, there are never enough funds for uh, uh, for what we need. So. Right. You got into museums. You got the opportunity to work at these military museums. Were the museums focused on civil war,
1: uh, civil um, war Partly, um, At Fort Meade, we um, primarily we dealt with the, the history of the Post. Um, and in, in the case of both Fort Meade and uh, Fort Lewis, they were established during the First World War. Uh, many of the, 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 the major forts uh, that the U.S. military, particularly the Army, has today, came out of the First World War, because in essence they weren't forts as in the old stockaded or or coast artillery forts, really what they are is maneuver areas. You know, because at the beginning of the 20th century we realized that that maneuver areas were really what we needed rather than, you know, stationary forts, uh, you know, with little garrisons. And uh, so in both cases, the bulk of our history uh, is dealing from 1917 to the present. However, at uh Fort Meade, we also we had our namesake George Gordon Meade, um, and so we had you know materials relating to him. Uh, we didn't have a big collection we got in relation to him, but things that we would interpret Civil War era materials about the Army of the Potomac and his service in the Civil War and why the post was named after Meade, um, et cetera And uh, here at Fort Lewis, although again we the post was established in 1917. We have uh, a, a good-sized gallery devoted to the history of the Pacific Northwest from the time of Lewis and Clark uh, through to the, to the establishment of, of Fort Lewis um, because we feel it's important for the soldiers and the public to know what a contribution the U.S. Army played uh, here in the Pacific Northwest.
0: Well Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back in a moment. We're talking with Alan H. Archambault author of the sketchbook of the Union Infantryman and a veteran museum director. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. World
1: Talk Radio.
0: A sketchbook of the Union Infantryman looks like a good a cartoon-style book to give to some young person to get them interested in the Civil War. But once you get it, you'll want to keep it for yourself. You'll find out why when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: you got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you.
0: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Alan H. Archambault, author of A Sketchbook of the Union Infantryman and other books about the Civil War, uh, graphic books, as well as uh, a veteran museum director. We talked a little bit, uh, Alan, in our first segment about uh, some of the museums where you've been uh, where you've worked over the years. Developed your interest in history and the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of these publications uh, of yours, and in particular, this book called "The Sketchbook of the Union Infantryman." Mm-hmm. It looks said uh, from the cover. It looks like a, uh, a coloring book, basically. You mm-hmm. open it, and you see it's all black and white with a lot of drawings, uh, but it's actually much more than that. It's really quite a detailed uh, sketchbook, literally, of uh, all kinds of details of the equipment and uniform and even tactics uh, of the soldiers of, of the Civil War. Can you uh, talk about this book a little bit?
1: Yes. Um, well, uh, basically, I've just, uh, as I mentioned, I've always been interested in, in doing art and and uh while I was in the in the Army, I did a lot of cartoons, or actually in high school as well um and I sort of grew up once again, just like with the civil war materials uh you know reading comic books and you know reading uh what you might say popular publications uh as like I say during the bicentennial, we had all kinds of civil war um comic books and what have you um and of course, most of them were not very accurate as far as the details and so I decided um. While I was still going to college, to uh, pick up a niche where I would do historical uh, coloring books or sketchbooks, if you will, um, that went into things a little more detailed, like I would have liked to see when I was a kid. And um, I did, um, I've done quite a few for a company, uh, Bellerophon. Um, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, black soldiers in the Civil War, Civil War heroines. Um, great heroes of the Civil War and they've been very very popular and um, you see them in national park sites all over the country um, and I've gotten a number of fan letters which is always really nice from uh, young boys and girls that are really into the Civil War at eight or nine ten years old and of course I always get feedback from adults but it's been a very positive very positive feedback and um, that it's, it's it sort of tries to make history um, Lively, if you will. Uh, and I, as I know you probably recognize, I do a lot of research. And when you're doing things for young readers or general readers, uh, sort of a public history forum, you try to distill um, the information that you've collected, you know, in my case, almost a lifetime, uh, into a, a format that would try to attract the younger reader and allow them to see what you see in the subject, you know, to share that love uh, for the subject. And you know, as I say, from some of the letters, I, I you know, at least some children have really enjoyed them.
0: I'm looking now at uh, black soldiers in the Civil War, which is again in a, uh, a format uh, eight by eight and a half by eleven format. Uh, not uh, I'm going to guess uh, thirty to forty pages.
1: Yeah, that was one of those. Yes, yeah, so that was one of the smaller ones.
0: Uh, it's a small one and three ninety five. So it's something that that. If you're at a national park, uh, at a battlefield, and you find this, you could definitely get this for uh, the children and the family without worrying about it. But I'm looking at the the central picture, a two-page spread, again in black and white, so it could be colored in if children wanted to do that. Uh, And it's a picture of soldiers of the 54th Massachusetts marching uh, two by two, a drummer boy leading them, an officer in the background. But as I look at it, I say this is the St. Gaudens
1: Memorial. Right, that one I did, I did. Usually, I try to be a little more creative, but that memorial is so beautiful, and that I wanted to use that as a centerpiece. And it's it's adapted from, from the memorial.
0: But it, what, I mean, what I like about it is it doesn't say that that's what it is. Right. Uh, and and to a child, it's just a very dramatic picture. These these figures are moving dynamically. They're leaning forward. I mean, right. You see them moving, even though uh, it's, it's a static picture. The officer is, is very distinct in his upright pose, very rigid back. The drummer boy leading them. And so to to the child, it's just it's a great picture, and you look at it that. But to the people listening to the show, they look at it and they go, "Oh, that's the monument in Boston. That, that's St. Gaudens uh, relief of the the Fifty Fourth Massachusetts." So you're, you're reaching I, two audiences at once here.
1: That's right, and I and I and I get that frequently. Um, I, over the years, um, I've had many, many requests um, from reenactment units or Civil War roundtables, et cetera, et cetera, to um, use some of my, my artwork in their uh, publications, you know, in their, just their, their local publications. And I, I always say no problem, you know, uh, if it's not being used for resale, uh, by all means, go ahead and use it. And of course, many times I'll I'll be reading something and see one of my illustrations on a website or something. So I know that you know the, the wonderful thing is by having an inexpensive publication that reaches a lot of people. Yeah, you get a lot of uh, exposure, so to speak.
0: And then, so if if uh, a roundtable asked you to use something in their newsletter, you'd say fine with that. Oh sure, sure. Uh, I
1: mean, like I say, many of them use them anyway. But but I've always yeah, I've always said I don't. I, there's no problem as long as you're not marketing it for resale, obviously. Right. What is with nice my publisher, and... we've, we've talked about it, and they, they certainly have no problem uh,
0: with,
1: with doing that. Because, again, you know, it's it's sharing that love of the subject. Um, and I think that's what it's all about. I think um, many of us, whether we're instructors like you um, or reenactors or, or museum people, isn't a lot of it about sharing your love of the subject?
0: It is. I mean, I mean you want to communicate with people, uh, as we're doing right here on the show. It's not a... A for-profit business oh it's never too late to remind people they're welcome to donate to the Civil War talk radio book fund but uh, it, it is the, the sharing I would say there are limits I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being invited to a uh, give a talk at a round table uh, and driving three or four hours to talk to five or six people and thinking hmm next time I'm going to have to check this out more carefully oh yes oh yes <laughs> uh, that, that does happen it,
1: yeah, and with the museums, I've had that happen a lot. A lot of little historical societies will invite me, and I used to do. I used to go to everyone. You know, when you first get into the business.
0: Oh, absolutely! You can't believe someone wants to hear your opinion. I,
1: exactly, exactly. Yes. You're thrilled, you know. But uh, you're right. I mean, you do get a little uh, wizened after after a while, and say, "Hey, it's going to be something that's worth my time." Right. Because time becomes premium when you have a family, particularly, and other other uh, responsibilities.
0: And that's that's that is what it's all about It's not that anyone's trying to get rich off doing this but if a if a round table that's four hours away asks someone to speak uh, they need to at least put in the gas money or something so that you can make it uh, worth the time you're taking away from family and work exactly
1: exactly yeah. and my it's funny um when my children were small and they're both you know uh, almost adults now um what sort of gave me validity is when they went to a classroom and one of the teachers had one of my books. Oh, which happened, I think to both of the both of my daughters. Uh, you know that gave me some validity, Dad. You know she had your book. You know, <laughs> and because they, they had to tell the teacher that that was their book and <laughs> their father's book and what have you. But that always makes you feel feel good.
0: Oh, that is, that does is does a great get, thing. You know,
1: yeah. it does get your uh, your passion sort of out in front of people who may not be exposed to it otherwise. And by having a popular publication. As opposed to a collector's or a limited edition, so to speak, you know you you reach more people uh,
0: you do and and i my own experience when I travel to uh, museums at least uh, as a former practicing museum professional is the almost the first thing I want to see is the store uh, in the museum, oh yes, <laughs> rather than the exhibits because i'm I'm pretty sure I know how the exhibits are done and and i I'm not usually going to be overwhelmed or surprised by some new technique or technology and uh, or even an artifact I'm not uh, that I haven't seen similar ones of before but I am curious to see what I can take home that's and, right and, and I,
1: I also I mean you can tell a lot uh, about yeah. a museum from its gift store
0: you, you really yep. can it's it, how how much of it the philosophy in the museum I worked at was that the gift store is Uh, Is another exhibit. It's part of. It's a reflection of the museum. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
2: And we're we're wonderful.
1: At Fort Lewis, we have a wonderful group of volunteers that run our gift store, and most of them are retired military people, for the most part, or spouses, and many of them share the interest in the Civil War, uh, in American military history. And we have a we have a nice little gift store uh, to include a number of publications, rather than just the 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 typical. you know Fort Lewis keychains and magnets and things of that nature, which we certainly sell as well. Mm-hmm. But we have people come specifically to to visit our gift store.
0: Well, that's good, and, and the publications make a difference.
1: I want to get back to the,
0: the the sketchbook of the Union infantrymen, which is the most substantial of the uh, uh, the books I'm looking at here. This is a ten dollar publication, and it, it looks like it's more like eighty uh, yeah about eighty pages. it. it, it it's, it's not quite aimed at kids in the same way, or maybe it's the enthusiast kid that we all once were.
1: Right, exactly, and that's that's what happened. Um, I decided, because of some of these letters I was getting, and one of the wonderful ones I received, the, the boy said, my mother said, I did a, a book called uh, Billy Yank, um, and I did uh, Johnny Reb as well, and one of the children said, oh, I wish it was longer, uh, you know, I keep it by my bed, and my mother calls it my Bible and, uh, you know, as well you should, Johnny, but I mean, <laughs> it was it an odd, but I said, you know, evidently there are kids out there, uh, you know, judging from a few letters I received that really would like something a little more substantial. And, um, Thomas Publications, it's based in Gettysburg, um, you know, did have a series of popular publications, so I approached them to do that particular publication. Um, and it, it's been pretty popular. I, I would say that probably, um, some of the, the less expensive ones have done better, uh, just by the nature of the thing. But I'm, I'm proudest of the the Union Infantryman book, because it does get into things in a little more depth.
0: When I looked at it, it what it reminded me of was uh, a book by Jack Coggins uh, called Arms and Equipment of the Civil War.
1: One of my favorite books, <laughs> as you can imagine. I,
0: yes. I, I can well imagine. Was that an influence on you?
1: Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah, I used to take it out of the school library because I didn't know where to buy one at the time. And, uh, I finally bought a reprint, you know, as an adult. Um, and in fact, he just passed away several years ago. I mean, well That's into right. his 90s. Hmm. Uh, they have a website devoted to him, actually. Um, but yeah, it was a wonderful book because it did it graphically. Um, Spelled out, you know, how the soldiers lived, the kind of weapons they used, the tents they used, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, and I really loved that book because it was what you might say, get into the material culture rather than just the, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg was fought on, you know, July 1st through 3rd. This got into what it was like to be a soldier a little bit or what it was like to live during that period. And I think a lot of, a lot of young people, they, they enjoy that. Oh, I think people in general do. How did these people live and, and what did they use? Um, and that really was a very very much an influence uh, on me.
0: Well, I, I think it shows. I, I remember that book as well. I did the same thing. I used to borrow it from the library all the time, and finally as an adult found a reprint of it. And I think it's available now in a reprinted edition if folks are interested.
1: If yes, uh, it is. Mm-hmm.
0: You, you cannot go wrong with uh, uh, that book. It's very uh, evocative. Well, your drawings do some of the same things. You have one, for example, where you... Uh, show a sort of bird's-eye view of a re- unit, the regiment drawn up in, in line of battle, and you've got a, uh, a, a sort of plan above it showing where the companies are, or which which letter companies are in which place, and where the file closers stand and the officers and so on. And it's just the sort of thing that uh, if you're 10 years old and want to set up your toy soldiers in the right order, this kind of thing is very appealing. But if you're an adult and want to understand uh, what, why the companies are deployed as they are at a battle here's a nuts and bolt's way to, to get a look at a regiment uh, on the field and, and it's a very useful drawing
1: so thank you well that's that was my intention and and with Jack Coggins could you go back and look now um, although it's magnificent, there were a number of mistakes and, and they're excusable at the time because very little had done along those lines you know, you know so now we 're taking things a step further. I think in some of the research, you know, I think you know yourself how much more research is available today, you know, about the minutia, and so I, I like to think that you know I try to improve on the things a little bit, you know, using the the uh, uh, information that's so much more readily available today. You're taking it to that next step, if you will.
0: And I think I think your book shows that. I'm looking again, another page. You've got drawings of four different types of muskets and the. Uh... Uh, and the, the lock uh, for each one, the detail of the, the firing mechanism. Uh, so there is a level of detail here that uh, that does reflect information that wasn't necessarily widely available.
1: Right, and I think you'll find that you know in all sources of material culture today, among the reenactors or whatever. Before it used to be, well, if you have a blue shirt, you know, and the hat, the kepi looks sort of right, you know, you're okay. And now, of course, you know they're into counting the stitches and everything. Well. Let's, um, let's... Which isn't necessarily always necessary, but it becomes, uh, you know, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right.
0: This is a good place for us uh, to take another break here. I'm going to step in. We'll take a short break. uh, And reenactment is a subject worth talking about. You've written a little bit on that. So we'll come back in just a moment with our guest, Alan Archambault, and talk about uh, Civil War reenacting on Civil War Talk Radio. Funny about Civil War reenacting, or is there anything not funny about Civil War reenacting? We'll find out from our guest Alan Archambault when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one-level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to
2: achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs APSIO. APSIO's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first
0: impression on the web. Choose APSIO, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit
2: www.appseo.com.
0: You're
1: listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.
0: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Alan Archambault, author of The Sketchbook of the Union Infantryman, and other publications. Alan, we talked about your Museum background and and some of these really delightful publications, uh, uh, sketchbooks, coloring books, books aimed at young readers, but also, uh, especially in the case of the sketchbook, highly uh, interesting to the older reader, especially those of us who remember Jack Coggins and the arms and equipment of the Civil War. I'm looking now at a book that strikes me as aimed at an extraordinarily narrow market. Uh, It's called The Blue and Gray Civil War Mirth and Reenacting. And you've got a book here about sort of the lighter side of uh, reenacting and the Civil War itself. Um, is this uh, is this a book for reenactors? And um, so?
1: it's sort of yes, yeah, so, um, I might say the reenacting community. Um, my publisher that we've done a number of other uh, books with uh, thought that he got a big kick out of Civil War reenacting and thought that it would be fun to to put something like this together. we we'll are sort of incorporate um... jokes or, or humorous things regarding the civil war in some cases and then also extending to the reenacting of the civil war so it, it it gets into both subjects and as you well know there's a there's a pretty uh... good size um... group of people that do the reenacting uh... or you know the settlers they uh, all the, the the people who are involved on some level not just civil war soldier reenacting and we thought we'd try it and, and again the re, the uh... response seems to have been pretty good particularly at some of the historical sites and people that travel to the different reenactments that sell books and things like that because i think the reenactors uh, can see a lot of the the humorous aspects of, of what they do it, you know that are reflected in the book
0: and and i mean it is actually pretty funny you've got uh... I guess we call them comics. We, we see two uh, uh, ridiculous-looking tourists in modern tourist gear uh, looking at two reenactors and saying, "Look how weird they looked in the old days."
1: Right. Uh, <laughs> right.
0: They're, they're, it's all relative, obviously. Yeah,
1: I think even though I, I don't think you're a reenactor, uh, you can see. I think you see some of the the aspects of reenacting that can be parodied.
0: Well, there there are, and I guess it's, um, like I said, it seems like a niche market. Uh, First you're narrowing it to reenactors, and then reenactors who can laugh at themselves.
1: Right, right. I think most can. I I was involved in reenacting in my high school days, and a little bit later. um, And I've always enjoyed, because I'm into the material culture, uh, you know, much of the uh, research that's being done today is done by people uh, either for the reenacting market or for, you know, their reenactors themselves. And um, I found that most of them are pretty, pretty humorous, uh, pretty lighthearted people, uh, you know, by and large. They take their reenacting seriously, but I think they can also look at it. Uh, and the Civil War soldiers themselves, uh, you know, obviously, a, 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 by and large, a, a good group of guys you, know, you, could, you could joke with when you read the old publications, and I, I try to capture a little bit of that in the book, but some of the Civil War humor itself.
0: Well, I like the, um, uh, and, and I think it does well. The one that I particularly like uh, looking at here shows a group of, looks like five or six Union reenactors uh, standing around the flag and over across the stone wall, we see perhaps 10,000 Confederate reenactors. Every other one has a flag. They're all <laughs> screaming the rebel yell. And uh, the Union folks are noting, hmm, we're outnumbered about 20 to 1. And one younger one says, didn't we outnumber them at the real battle? So, uh, well, I'm saying that's a big problem in the Deep South when they do reenactments. So oh, it's to a problem in the that North, is. believe me. Um, for, when I lived in Indiana, we often worked with local reenactment units uh, at our museum. But whenever there was an open event, they had to draw straws to get somebody to dress up as a union unit. Exactly. (laughs) Because everybody wants to be uh, Johnny Reb, which actually I think points to, I don't want to call it the darker side. I guess I I do want to call it the darker side of reenacting, which is the tendency to romanticize uh, and look look at the the colorful, uh, brave, underdog, tattered Johnny Reb image. And and uh, it's very easy to start thinking of them as a good guy,
1: um, right? Uh,
0: d- do you encounter that with the people who are buying this book?
1: No, I haven't found that. Again, um, I think it, it's really you know obviously there's still and I know you've discussed it on your program um, probably a little deeper sentiments in the South than there is in the North about the, about the. Uh, war between the states.
0: Yes, that, um, that's
1: true. And I think certainly in the book I was careful not to, to, to um, you know, really mock any any side. You know, I try to try to stay on the uh, subjects that would be, you know, amusing and maybe they'd have some deeper meaning, but but not really, uh, you know, criticize. As we well know, how many Southerners you know were fighting for slavery as individuals. You know, and, and I know people talk this to death. Um, but I don't think the Confederates, you know, were either the good guys or the bad guys. I think most of us look beyond that. Um, so I really haven't had any negative feedback of anybody saying, hey, you know, you're, you're making fun of them. Or <clears throat> I think the one I have with the Confederate flag showing them throwing it at Appomattox and uh, the Confederate officer saying, you know, this flag will always stand for freedom and bravery and, and all that, you know, is, is the kind of story that I wanted to get across. What did the soldiers feel at the time? You know, they felt it was a flag of freedom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: regardless of what 20th century, 21st century things we put on it today. So, you know, I try to be kind, I guess, in that regard, not get into too much of the real Docker side, mm. you know, not that not being the forum for it, I think.
0: Yeah, I, it, there are certainly appropriate places to discuss uh, issues in other places where that doesn't always work so well.
1: They, well, I think today, I think so much, we're so politically correct in some ways, that without a deeper meaning to it. I mean, I think certainly we can get into any any conflict in history, and you, it's very difficult to break it down by good guys and bad guys. Uh, or, you know, one country is bad and one is good. You know, certainly governments have agendas that are, that are bad, but um, I try to, in both of all my publications, I've done them on both the Union and Confederate side, I try to be respectful of the individual soldiers that gave so much. You know, they're not the ones that started the wars. You know, they're they're the poor guy. The rich man's war and the poor man's fight.
0: Mm -hmm. And And, I mean, that makes sense that these individuals get caught up in it.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: I wanted to ask you something I mentioned earlier about uh, civil war sites in the far west. As you correctly point out, people in the South tend to be more uh, aware of and perhaps emotionally engaged with civil war right the people in the north who in turn are, are are much more aware and engaged with it than people in the far west where the sites are few and far between if somebody lives in the pacific northwest and wants to see something dealing with the civil war is there any place they can go
1: yes there actually is yes. um, i should say first of all that the the um, washington territory uh... in oregon as well of course uh... in the mid eighteen hundreds in the eighteen forties um... both oregon and, and washington began to get settlers in Washington a little bit later than than Oregon. But they also had army garrisons out here. Um, And there were some Indian conflicts. And not not only that, but there was problems with the British, who had designs on the region, and there was a Hudson's Bay, a series of Hudson's Bay forts. And the U.S. Army came out here in some strength. And and right here in the Washington Territory, Grant uh, served as a captain, Uh, Sheridan, uh... e porter alexander george pickett um, colonel silas casey later general casey uh, mcclellan um, we had any number of, of people serving out here um... prior to the civil war and so there's a, there's a lot of connections to these people in the names of places um... they you know, again much of the early history has to do with these army soldiers that came out here and so the pre-civil war period um, particularly has a lot of Civil War connections because of people serving out here. And in fact, when the Civil War began, George Pickett was stationed up in the San Juan Islands uh, to the north of, of Washington Territory. <coughs> Excuse me, and he um, actually resigned his commission in July of 1861 and made his way back uh, east. So there's a lot of connections to Civil War personalities. There's also a series of forts, that uh, some of which still exist, or portions still exist, where these people served. And in, in the uh, Puget Sound region, um, near Tacoma and about 50 miles from Seattle, is Fort Stelecum. And um, that was the headquarters for the Army in the Puget Sound region from 1849 to 1868. And again, George Pickett was there, Silas Casey was the commander. Um, a lot of great, there's several great... Um, Diaries and journals that, that have survived that talk about the personalities of these people. In fact, George Pickett married an Indian woman while he was stationed out here, um, and they had a little boy uh, named Timothy Pickett. Hmm. And unfortunately, his wife died shortly after childbirth, and this little boy uh, was continued to be supported by Pickett until he died.
0: Is there anything left of that fort? Uh, yes, there are four
1: of the officers' quarters left, and it actually is the center for the local reenactment groups. We actually have several hundred uh, reenactors here in the Washington area um, who uh, not only portray the soldiers that served out here in the Northwest, um, but also portray, you know, Civil War, have Confederates and everything. Hmm. Another thing I should mention is after the Civil War, um, both Union Confederate veterans came out here in great numbers particularly in the Tacoma, Washington area. This was the terminus of the big the railroad line heading west uh, to the northwest. And many, many Union veterans particularly settled in the Tacoma area, and there were more of the Confederates for some reason up in Seattle. And there's actually GAR cemeteries as well as Confederate cemeteries out here uh, in, in the Seattle-Tacoma area.
0: Hmm. So they brought their... Uh... Their, their culture or their political. They,
1: they certainly did. And in fact, when uh, World War I, or actually before World War I, uh, the GAR uh, was extremely uh, active in trying to get the U.S. Army to establish a permanent um, post here. In the Puget Sound region, uh, in the early, early 1900s. And actually, they, the land that Fort Lewis is on, seven, uh, we're now 86,000 square acres, with the second largest army installation in the United States. Uh, 70,000 acres, the, the nucleus of the post, were given to the U.S. Army free of charge by the citizens of Pierce County, where we're located. And the, uh, nucleus of the, the, um, people who wanted to support it were primarily Union veterans. Or Civil War veterans mm-hmm. who still had that interest in the military. Um, in fact, uh, one of the mayors of Tacoma, uh, Sprague, was actually a Medal of Honor recipient for the Civil War. Hmm.
0: So, so there is um, still uh, a living memory or some kind of connection to to that part of the from that part of the country.
1: Yeah, very much so. In its own little way, you'd be surprised. Um, I believe the West Coast, and it might have been California, Oregon, Washington, had one of the largest uh, numbers of GAR posts. And I think what it was, these people came west, and it was a way to sort of rekindle relationships or or to have, you know, you're coming into a new area. Well, you know, how do you sort of form friendships and and associations? And so, uh, again, surprisingly, this was a very, very uh, uh, active area for Civil War veterans.
0: And one can picture veterans uh, having lived outdoors for several years, lived uh, a dangerous life. Uh, coming back and just taking the old job and a clerk in a store might not have seemed uh, seemed adequate. Maybe you have to go to California and, and try to start over and do something.
1: Oh, yes. I think it's how you're going to keep them down on the farm syndrome.
0: Exactly. You know, certainly
1: you've been out and seen the world. It's very hard to uh, to go back to the humdrum. And you are most of young men, you know, adventurous or what have you. Uh, as soon as an end result is actually a... You know, a lot of connections when you start researching the local towns around here, how many of them were formed by, by Civil War veterans. And we have Civil War monuments, you know, to the... and In fact, the cemetery uh, in Tacoma, um, I went and sort of cataloged the graves once. There were several hundred, I forget now exactly. And they were from some great regiments. You know, first Minnesota, uh, a couple of U.S. colored troops, um, you know, a lot of New England and Midwestern units um, of, you know, soldiers that had come out here after the war.
0: Yeah. Well, there settled. is something something in common with uh, pioneering and with soldiering. The the expression "seeing the elephant" is one that the Forty uh, ers used, and of course, the soldiers use it to refer to That's combat. Right. And, and you've got a drawing in, in the Union Infantryman sketchbook of soldiers fighting with uh, with an elephant uh, sort of in the background. There, the, literally, they're seeing the elephant.
1: Right, a very exactly. Nice, nice
0: <laughs> image. Um, Well, our music in the background tells us that we're out of time once again. But, Alan, I want to thank you very much for being on the show today.
1: Once again, my pleasure.
0: And, listeners, you'll want to take a look at some of these books, Black Soldiers in the Civil War, and especially uh, the Union Infantryman Sketchbook by Alan Archambault. Very interesting work. And thank you again for listening. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Civil War Talk Radio.
1: World Talk Radio.